And I think that we are really coming into a world that's similar to oncology. We'll have a realm of medications that we can offer. It might be that we use three or four simultaneously. It might be that we know certain medications are more useful for certain patients. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Next week, Dr. Matthew Kiernan of the Brain and Mind Center at the University of Sydney in Australia will be honored by the American Academy of Neurology and the American Brain Foundation. A pioneer in ALS research, Dr. Kiernan has advanced our understanding of the ways that ALS progresses, the role the brain plays in ALS, and the search for biomarkers. In recognition of his leadership as an ALS researcher, Dr. Kiernan is this year's recipient of the Sheila Essie Award. The Sheila Essie Award, a $50,000 prize given each year to support ALS research, is given to acknowledge and honor individuals who are making significant contributions in the search for effective treatments and cures for ALS. Since 1996, the $50,000 award has been made possible through the generosity of the SE Family Fund through the ALS Association Golden West Chapter in memory of Sheila Essie, who battled ALS for 10 years and died from the disease in 2004. Dr. Kiernan recently took time from his schedule to sit down with me to talk about his research, the future of ALS research, and what the Sheila Essie Award means to him. Dr. Kiernan, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Well, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks to the ALS Association for having me join you. Well, yes, and you know, congratulations to you for the SE Prize, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. But before we talk about your research and the prize and the future of ALS research, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you into the field of ALS research? Sure. So look, I'm a neurologist by discipline and training, and it was during my medical, general medical training that, in fact, I I owe a debt to the United States, and it was George Bush Sr. was president at the time in the 1990s, and he declared it the decade of the brain. And it just seemed very exciting. I mean, there was the discussion that imaging techniques would come along, there'd be magnetic resonance imaging, we'd have pictures of the brain in front of us. The Human Genome Project was uh, well underway, so we'd understand the, the, the genetic basis for a lot of the conditions we're dealing with, and, and really just seemed that as a result, we're going to have a lot of therapies. And I suppose many of the other systems in medicine have been well worked out, you know, cardiology and the, the the, the studies there, the research is more involved with tens of thousands of patients looking at slight variations in blood pressure. But really, we didn't understand how the brain works, mechanisms of the brain, the concepts of brain and mind, and then healthy brain aging. And what do we do with neurological neurodegenerative conditions? So I thought it was like a wide open road, re- relatively unexplored and exciting. And so that's why I, I chose neurology. Then I suppose, why did I get into ALS and and neurodegenerative diseases? And I started, uh, after I did my clinical training, I did a a period of research. And at that stage, we were trying to uncover why nerves stopped working, uh, conduction failure in nerves. And gradually, I became aware of, you know, a whole field series of conditions and, and ALS 
At that stage, uh, I used to see quite a bit of ALS, but it was presented to me as a neuromuscular condition, a problem with muscle wasting. And I was doing a lot of neurophysiology as well, so diagnostic testing. And I always assumed it was a muscle wasting disease, and, and clearly it is. But then people started to bring up concepts, well, where does it begin? Is it really beginning in the muscles or the nerves? Is it coming from the spinal cord? And I, there weren't many people who were saying that it was coming from the brain. And, and in fact, when some of those people would get up at conferences saying that it's coming from the brain, um, they'd all they'd be shouted down or, or even, you know, ridiculed. And one of the other arguments at that stage was, um, I remember a quote from David Niven, the famous English actor, and he said, you know, it's horrible being trapped in a body, but your mind is intact. And that was the, 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 the understanding that it was, that the brain is still working completely normally, but, but the, there's a muscle wasting and a paralysis and a locked in syndrome. And I think during the course of my career, it's been amazing to see the whole turnaround of the condition to now understanding that it, it is a primary neurodegenerative Generative disease that begins in the brain, spreads through the whole neural pathway and, and network, but particularly the corticospinal tract, which controls voluntary muscles. So obviously, muscle wasting is, is a key feature of the disease. And I think also with that, then the links to dementia, frontotemporal dementia. And it turns out that people had discussed this, but because of the burden of the disease ALS, they'd been reluctant to investigate it because they didn't want to put more of a sort of a, a stigma on, on ALS patients. And so the people who wrote the original studies, at least in the English literature, said they, they gave it away because it was too hard, too complicated, and they didn't want to explore behavioral abnormalities in ALS patients. And I think now with the discovery of C9-OF, C9-open reading frame gene, which, which causes both frontotemporal dementia and ALS, um, it causes such a, a significant proportion of disease in patients that we see with apparently sporadic disease as well as familial ALS. I think, again, now we, we understand how cognition is a, a critical part of understanding the condition. So the, the field has moved. Unfortunately, though, we still don't have a very fine point to say, yep, this is how ALS begins and this is how it progresses through the body. And that's what has really slowed us down in terms of discovering better therapies for, for our patients. So much to unpack there. You know, I think listeners to this show have a sense of all the different avenues that an ALS researcher can go down, whether it's biomarkers, whether it's drug development, whether it is the genesis of the disease from where it starts to how it progresses. So I'm curious to know, what path did you take? And talk to us a little bit about the research that you're doing today. So my path is as a clinician, as a neurologist. So my path is very much driven by patients, their families, carers. And, and I suppose that's also an important thing to raise, that ALS does appear to be a uniquely human condition. Of course, there are models and there are, you know, animal models of the disease. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the therapies that have worked in animal models have not translated into a therapy for, for patients. So I think it's important to always try to make sure that we're focusing on the human disease that is ALS. Um, as I mentioned, I was interested in neurophysiology and a lot of the techniques were more driven in 
limbs and spinal areas, but I was interested then in trying to get to the brain. And um, our brain, courtesy of evolution, is very well protected. It's hard to get to. And one of the ways that we can uh, activate the brain is through a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So we get a magnetic stimulator. It's not invasive It's a, and it's placed over parts of the brain to activate them. So we can activate the motor neuron in the brain and look at the behavior. And so that's what I've focused really the last uh, 25 years on is trying to come up with techniques. Well, firstly, to, to make the technique useful for ALS. Secondly, to use it to explore what's going on. And so we have developed a technique called transcranial uh, or threshold tracking, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So it's all now completely automated on a computer, like a PC driving the whole regime. And we use it for all of our patients when we first see them to, to try and work out whether it is ALS or not. And there's a very typical signature of ALS patients when you do transcranial magnetic stimulation, their brain is hyper-excitable. So it takes very little to activate the motor neuron. And that hyper-excitability is almost like a stream flowing through the brain, spinal cord and peripheral nerves. And we see that peripherally because they have overactivity, they, patients have fasciculation, so the, the muscles and nerves are firing off by themselves and that's the same in the central nervous system there is a hyper excitability so that's been the focus of my own clinical uh, research but then obviously um, with colleagues we've been um, undertaking national and international clinical trials um, and then we're trying to come up with you know appropriate biomarkers to try and work out firstly diagnostic issues but also prognostic and um, then the next, the other issue that I would like to raise is diagnostic criteria. And I think that has held us back as a field. It was always complicated because we didn't have a, a test to run. You can't send someone to the pathology and they come back and they say, yes, it's ALS. So inevitably, we are sort of trying to work out criteria and those criteria were done in a very, you know, appropriate way to say, well, this is, if we put this patient into a clinical trial, this is what we say they have. As uh, when I say we, it's the people who are running the clinical trial. But they started off with various degrees of certainty from possible, probable to definite. And I think in a way, and, I, and it's clear why that happened, but that has also been a, a slight problem for both the clinicians and patients, because some people are saying they're using that as, well, I'm not, it's not definite ALS. And well, what is definite ALS? It turns out that if, if one or two neurologists say that it's ALS, they're about 95, 96% correct. So a lot of patients were then not having definite or probable ALS, and many patients were actually dying without going through the, you know, the full criteria of, of being diagnosed. So we realized this was a problem. We held a workshop in 2019. It was in the Gold Coast. It was supported very generously by the ALS Association, also the World Federation of Neurology, PACTALS, which is a Pan-Asian consortium. And we've got 30 representatives through, and some of them had been present on each of the criteria from Early House through to Awaji and the LS Goral criteria. And we stripped it right back and, and came up with what, what are now called the Gold Coast criteria, which basically says that ALS is a progressive disease. So it's not progressive, it's not ALS, and it has the features of central and peripheral involvement or upper and lower motor neuron abnormalities and other conditions have been excluded. So it's a very simple 
set of criteria. And what, what I hope with those criteria is that it facilitates patient recruitment and enrolment in clinical trials. So I think all of us as a community want every patient to be offered access to involvement in a clinical trial. And this is, I think, very important, not just for the discovery and their, and their own patient feeling of contribution and autonomy. It's also that any patient who is on a clinical trial does better than patients who aren't on a clinical trial. And we're seeing now every single clinical trial, if there's a placebo arm, those patients are doing better and better and better with every clinical trial. And I think that's because they're being monitored, they're, they're actively engaged with their, with their clinical team, and they feel that they're contributing. So I think that's a major plus. You mentioned biomarkers and the connection between discovering biomarkers, knowing biomarkers, understanding the pathology of ALS and how that can speed up the time to diagnosis, how that can get people into clinical trials, how that can help point in the direction of potential treatments. You mentioned earlier you entered this field during the decade of the brain. How has it changed in the time since you first entered the field? Is it moving in the right direction? What is different now from when you first started in this space? So I think to put some perspective, multiple sclerosis, no registered therapy in 1990. Now we have about 13 registered therapies and some of those therapies can be given in the first attack for a patient and they never have another episode in the course of their life. Stroke, now people, you know, stroke neurologists are removing clots from the brain acutely and patients leave hospital, you know, one or two days later without any deficit. So the field in general has moved amazingly. In terms of ALS, it was regarded as a very hard and negative. And at that stage, there was nothing offered for patients. And once the diagnosis was made, and, and I've seen this, so it's not some sort of make-believe, it was, you know, get your affairs in order. Um, this is a relentlessly progressive disease and, you know, there's nothing that we can do. And I think to take, to extinguish hope for, for patients and their families is, is very cruel. I think that what has happened is there's been a major movement worldwide. There's been an interest in trying to solve the seemingly unsolvable problems. And ALS has gone from being relatively unknown to now being incredibly well-known worldwide. And I think, you know, the Ice Bucket Challenge and all the various other philanthropy, philanthropic approaches has certainly increased visibility of ALS. We have managed internationally to band together. We all work very collaboratively and patients are at the core of all of those initiatives. For instance, in our international you know, symposia, patients have fellows who come along and they help guide the research. And I think the turnaround from basically having no involvement and being harsh with patients has been it completely turned. Patients are uh, driving the whole research agenda and, and are key parts of it. So I think we have now, now national registries. We understand the course of the disease. So with these large scale, like particularly say the NCALS model, they can basically identify to the day virtually what, what the prognosis of patients will be. Then you might say, well, okay, what are we doing on the therapeutic uh, front? And okay, there have been some there has been some progress, so we, you know, in the early 1990s, we were part of the Rilizol studies, and that, I think, made us all think that this is going to be something very positive coming through, and that was FDA approved. Then nothing until Adarivone was the second medication that was approved by the FDA. 
But because of the significant investment from industry and philanthropy, there are so many trials underway and there's a lot of medications and approaches that are sort of very close to joining those two medications in terms of FDA approval. And I think that we are really coming into a world that's similar to oncology. We'll have a realm of medications that we can offer. It might be that we we use three or four simultaneously. It might be that we know certain medications are more useful for certain patients. So one trial that we're embarking on now relates to lithium therapy. And whilst that study in all ALS patients was a negative study, Subsequent analysis of the data has shown that those patients who have a SNP-UNC-13A do well on lithium therapy. So now what we want to do is test all of our patients, and we think it's somewhere between 7 and 15%, we'll have UNC-13A and put them on lithium. So this is a very precision-driven approach for a set subgroup of patients. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. We also know through the discovery of the genes linked to ALS that genetic approaches, whether it's you know splicing techniques in RNA, whether it's ASO approaches, oligosense oligonucleotide, antisense oligonucleotide approaches for specific genetic mutations like C9, SOD1, I think we're going to see these introduced to the clinic. And I think that this is going to amazingly transform outcomes for ALS patients. One of the words that we hear a lot, and we've heard a lot on this show over the last couple of years, is heterogeneity. And of course, you know, genetic testing and understanding the genetic components of ALS. And I think, you know, that you're speaking to how it's going to be a targeted approach based on an individual patient or a subset of patients. Uh, Dr. Kiernan, I have the pleasure of talking to you today uh, because you are the recipient of the SC Prize. Talk to me a little bit about how that prize and things like that, well, a feather in your cap, how do they help push the research forward? Yes, well, look, I mean, firstly, I would say thank you to the ALS Association and obviously to the American Academy of Neurology and particularly the SE family who came up with this very generous philanthropic idea to support ALS researchers. At a very simple level, it it attracts more attention to the fields of ALS. So certainly social media on locally in Australia and the United States, this has gone around the world and, and I've been a very fortunate to be a recipient of this prize and join you know my colleagues and peers over over past years now what does it mean well i think firstly it's a very generous gift and with that gift i'm focusing particularly on on two areas firstly we here in australia establishing a national consortia for clinical trials similar to the niels consortia and the sc prize will be used to help me progress that further and separately i mentioned this transcranial magnetic stimulation technique and we're working with our colleagues in a european um, um, firm called Neurosoft, and we will be developing this to basically, you know, we want to give it to all the clinics around the world to help drive more sort of discovery, understanding of the mechanisms of the disease, and use it as a marker in clinical trials. So it's great. I think the award as well is a reflection on my own teachers and my family and the patients who have contributed to the research and, and their carers, and everyone got a buzz out of it, and it's great to see. So it's really a reflection of that large 
French network. And it's great. It's a sort of, it's always nice to have a period where there can be a, a bit of, you know, thanking the people who have been instrumental in your career. You touched on a key word there, and that is global. And, you know, the, the, the idea that whatever your learnings are, whatever your findings are, are, are for the world to share. And it, it really illustrates the, to the extent to which this is a, a truly global fight. Uh, Dr. Kiernan, happy to have you as part of it and, and really grateful for your time today. No, thank you. And thanks again to the ALS Association. It's really you know, a fantastic organization and patients have really benefited as well as clinicians and researchers. So thank you. Well, I want to thank my guest this week, Dr. Matthew Kiernan. I also want to thank the Essie family for their continued support for ALS research. If you like this week's show, share it with your friends. And while you're at it, Please find time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. And thanks to Alex Brower, our sound engineer, for this week's episode. That's going to do it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. 